Uh, and you know, uh, today we're continuing in our study of uh, the book of Daniel a little bit. And uh, we're in the fourth chapter, which is a very interesting chapter. Uh, and uh, the fourth chapter is one that can really um, confound us because we, uh, we get very uh, focused on certain questions about the king of Babylon, about Nebuchadnezzar. But really, the great question is, uh, is in its application uh, about how this affects uh, our own lives, as we'll see today. And it certainly is uh, appropriate uh, for uh, this uh, time of year, as we'll see. So in the book of Daniel, uh, one of the, the, you could say, uh, the backdrop of this uh, is the relationship of Nebuchadnezzar and God, you know, the God of Israel. Uh, because uh, certainly in chapters 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, I, you know, we see Daniel and his friends as heroes, as, as these are people that stood up for what is right. Daniel said in his heart to serve God, and, uh, you know, and, and Daniel could interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel's friends in their courage and strength and their cultivated faith were able to stand up against the enemy. And these are great lessons and important lessons uh, in this book, but you could say the backdrop of the whole thing uh, uh, relates to the who it's it's sort of like the uh, the challenge of sovereignty, who's in control, uh, because all of these issues related to Daniel and his friends uh, all have to do with their relationship with God, and the question is, uh, is Nebuchadnezzar the one who's calling the shots, or is God the one who's calling the shots? Uh, does Nebuchadnezzar really have all the power? Should we be preoccupied with Nebuchadnezzar, or is it God? And that is, a, um, on one level, one of the great lessons that we learn uh, in the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. That is sort of like the overarching lesson in the whole book, right? That God's kingdom is the one that ultimately prevails, that God himself is the ulti- ultimately the one who prevails, that God's people are the ones that ultimately prevail. In one way or another, that's what we see here in this book. And that is just an overall lesson that we need to remember because when we look at the world around us, we become quite fearful about who's in charge, who is in control, who is the president, who's ruling this country, what saber is rattling over here, and and what are we going to do about it, and and so on. And, uh, and of course, uh, as uh, uh, responsible citizens, responsible people, we need to know about all those things, and we need to be praying rightly, and, and when we have the opportunity, certainly to, to vote and to speak into a system. But we need to recognize that the backdrop of the whole thing is, is that God is the one who is sovereign. And that if we're going to be preoccupied with anything, it needs to be with God and his uh, uh, reign, his rulership. And, and that that's not the, that's not the uh, on the margins, that's in the center. We don't realize how much we are guided by what we see and what we watch. And, and uh, you know, when, when we watch the news or we read the paper, that that becomes front and center, and that becomes the most important thing. 
And then we pray that God would somehow speak into that, hopefully, and that God might do something there. But you see, we have it backwards. And that the reality is that God is front and center. And that God is the one who is uh, acting, whether we see it in his hand or not. See? It is a cultivated truth in our lives. And that there are actors on the stage uh, that come and go. But God truly is guiding and directing history. Whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, whether it fits into our uh, theology or not, God is indeed uh, overseeing it all. And so here in the fourth chapter, uh, we have a beautiful illustration of this, a great reminder of this in the life of the king of Babylon. And that is, of course, Nebuchadnezzar. So when you read uh, these chapters in Daniel, you see that, boy, Nebuchadnezzar is like um, kind of uh, unstable. You know, uh, one minute he is uh, he's angry and ready to kill everybody. The next minute he's praising the God of Daniel, uh, who is all-powerful. Next thing you know, he's on the warpath again, and, and then he's praising the God of Daniel again. Uh, the God Most High. And so it seems uh, that Nebuchadnezzar uh, uh, is not a stable person and seems to fluctuate in his emotions from one extreme uh, uh, to the other. It's an interesting observation in the text. So now here in chapter 4, we see, and we don't know exactly what period of time this took place in his reign, but at some point, uh, probably in the mid to end period of his reign, because uh, you get from chapter four that he had been king now for a while, and that he, you know, he's a very uh, successful and had built great buildings and uh, was just uh, a, a very powerful. So this perhaps was in the middle, maybe toward the the second half of his reign. So we read here in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the peoples, nations men of every language that live on all the earth, may your peace abound. Okay? It, seemed, it has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. So, at the beginning... What you see here is, first of all, this is some kind of uh, proclamation, some kind of um, uh, communication, some kind of letter or something that Nebuchadnezzar is writing, right? Uh, and uh, he gives, uh, you might say, a typical kind of uh, greeting, you know, may your peace abound, okay? Uh, and uh, he, uh, when he says, it seems good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High has done for me, when you read that in relationship to everything else that Nebuchadnezzar says, like I said, I think, in a, a Bible study this week, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, when the football player gets a touchdown, you know, and uh, just uh, thanking, uh, thanking God and thanking this one and thanking that one, you know. It's sort of um, uh, a nice uh, tip, you might say, but uh, it doesn't say a word, it doesn't mean anything in terms of what's really going on inside 
of a, uh, you know, inside of a person's life. Nebuchadnezzar certainly had seen the wonders of God. We see that testified to us in these earlier chapters. So uh, certainly he had, um, he had seen that. And now he's going to tell a story. See? Uh, and uh, this story is about something uh, that has happened to him in his own life that has demonstrated to him that God is really powerful. Okay? Again, uh, we're asking the wrong question of the text when we ask the question, well, did Nebuchadnezzar really know the Lord? That's not what the text is actually, uh, and that's not a question the text is answering. And by all accounts, I'll just say this, the answer is no. Uh, by all accounts, Nebuchadnezzar uh, uh, does not become, as it were, a servant of God, but he recognizes the power of this God of Daniel. He does not recognize that Daniel's God is the one and only God. He does not recognize uh, uh, the need even for repentance. Because that comes up in this text, uh, and as, as we will see. But what he does come to see is the power of a God, okay? As Pharaoh came to understand the power of God. As the Philistines uh, came to understand the power of God. As the Assyrians came to understand the power of God, and the Persians, and the Greeks, and the Romans, and... We could keep going uh, uh, to this day. So now he's going to tell this story about uh, something that happened in his life. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Right there, that tells us something about him. Uh, and it's written in a, such a way that we would get this, okay? Uh, that, you know, he, he's, uh, he is the king, uh, as we saw in uh, chapter 2, you know, he built this gold statue. He remembered it from Daniel's, uh, well, in chapter 3, he built the gold statue because in chapter 2, Daniel told him, you are the head, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, right? Uh, and so uh, in his pride, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is, is just, uh, you know, flourishing in his power, in his, in his uh, abode. But... He was prone to having bad dreams. And we see again, he has a bad dream. He has, as it were, a nightmare. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. There you go. And these fantasies as I lay in my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So it is very interesting that he has this dream. And like in chapter 2, he knows that it's like a message. Right? He knows it's a message, but he doesn't know exactly what the message is. And so he needs help in understanding it. And just like chapter two, he first checks out, you know, the people that he trusts the most, you know, his magicians and sorcerers and so on and all that. And then he comes to Daniel. So he says, so I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them. Now, this is where, by the way, it's a little different than the second chapter. There he wants them to relate the dream back to him and its interpretation. Here, evidently, the dream is quite vivid, 
And he's asking only for the interpretation. But they could not make the interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. See, now, this is all after the fact, right? So by the mere fact that Nebuchadnezzar says, according to the name of my God, that tells us a little bit about the faith walk of Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> right? right? His God's name was Marduk, uh, uh, also known as Bel, and hence Daniel had the name Belshazzar named after his God. And, and Nebuchadnezzar wants us to remember that. Okay? Now, but he, he sees that in this Daniel boy, there is something, there is something more than meets the eye in Daniel. Because he says, and in whom a spirit of the holy gods. Now, that doesn't mean, first of all, that Nebuchadnezzar understands the third person of the triunity of God, uh, the Ruach HaKodesh. This is in Aramaic, just like it says here, uh, a spirit of the holy gods. In other words, he sees some supernatural effect, but he can't quite figure it out. And I related the dream to him, saying, so now here's the dream. O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians. So now he, he, isn't that interesting? He calls him chief of the magicians. He had already called in his magicians. Maybe this was like to butter him up. Who knows, Right? Since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, he knows that from the other dream that he had, certainly. Tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. So evidently, part of asking for the interpretation was to read back to me the dream. So we're talking about the right dream with the interpretation. Now these are the visions in my mind as I lay in my bed. I was looking and behold... There was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. Now, in the ancient world, trees were often used as symbols of power, uh, of empires, and of kings. What's interesting is that several places in a contemporary of Daniel, that is Ezekiel, trees were used to describe kings on whom judgment came. You can read it uh, in uh, the 31st chapter of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is relating the story of Pharaoh and the judgment on Egypt. And he, he refers to him as a tree. Uh, in, I believe, the 17th chapter of Ezekiel, uh, one of the kings of Israel after uh, Josiah uh, Jehoiakim or Jehoiachin, one of them, is likened unto a tree who ultimately is judged. And so this was not an unusual kind of dream uh, in the ancient world, even in uh, you know, extra-biblical literature, ancient Babylonian literature even. You read about trees serving you know, in this picture. So uh, this was not uh, that unusual. 
Now, notice the, uh, how powerful the tree is. First of all, it's really strong. You can see it from everywhere. And it, and it is taking care of everything. It is the tree of trees, you might say. Right? Okay. Uh, now it says in verse 13, I was looking in the visions in my mind. I mean, so far, so good. You know? Uh, I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay in my bed. And behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. Now we might say, what's a, what's a watcher? Right? Okay, so in Aramaic, the word watcher, that's where, you know, if you want, it's not, a, uh, it's not an interpretation. That's what it, that's what it means in Aramaic, okay? Uh, uh, someone who uh, watches or stands guard or, uh, uh, yeah, that's good enough. One, one who watches, okay? Uh, now, in uh, uh, ancient literature, Extra-biblical literature, this term is often used for angels who are fallen angels, but not always, of one sort or another. You know, the, the Book of Watchers, First Enoch, for example, you know. But in this case here, we uh, need to observe the text. little inductive Bible study, ding, 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 right? Observe the text to see how, the, how this particular watcher from heaven is described a holy one, a holy one, descended from heaven. Okay, so therefore, I, I based on this text, and as it unfolds, you see a little farther down. For example, uh, in verse twenty-three, you see again, and in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven, uh, and then uh, explaining what's what's going to happen. So, perhaps an angel of some sort. But because this is written in Aramaic, uh, uh, perhaps the terminology is, uh, you know, is used this way, watcher. And most likely, it is not speaking of some kind of fallen angel or an evil angel, because the goal of the whole thing, as we'll see, is to glorify God. So, a watcher. Okay. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter the fruit. See, this is where the dream's going, going south, right? For Nebuchadnezzar, all right? Because in his mind, trees are power. Trees are kings. Trees are empires. But what's happening to this tree, which I think is me? Strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in its ground, in the ground. So unlike, interestingly enough, unlike the other uh, metaphors of trees, like in Ezekiel, this tree is not destroyed, but this tree is cut down to the stump. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and, and bronze around it <clears throat> in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts the grass of the earth. So in other words, let him live outside and let him eat like an animal and, and be like an animal. Okay. So this is kind of interesting that the tree is cut, but notice right in the middle of verse 15, <laughs> kind of like right in the middle of the verse, 
It goes from a tree to a person, right? But let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts the grass of the earth. And let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let the beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. So basically what he sees is the tree is a person. The person is going to uh, become like an animal. And for seven periods of time, whether that's years or a metaphor of uh, just the right amount of time, this uh, uh, person is going to be like an animal. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is very important here in understanding this. First of all, this, the sentence is by the decree of angelic watchers. You know, it's interesting that you see, um, uh, you see it in the beginning of Genesis. Uh, you see it, I think, in Job. Uh, you see it here. You get this understanding that there is this, like, a divine council. You have God and you have angels that he interacts with, right? Uh, and uh, evidently, uh, the, the picture of these watchers of the angels is that of this divine council uh, that is going to show uh, in the person of this king the sovereignty of God. And that no matter what kind of ruler there may be, no matter what kind of empire there may be, that God is indeed the ruler of heaven and earth. See, that's very important, that verse 17. It tells us that's the point, right? In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. And, uh, and may that, uh, that is a great lesson. We'll just pause there and say, instead of saving it all the way to the end, that is a great lesson for us to learn. I, that when we are anxious about world events and politics, I mean, that's what this is about. A king is a politician. Nebuchadnezzar was a politician. He was not elected, right? No, but still a politician, right? Uh, he's the ruler that whether we understand it or not, God is indeed in control. And think about that world in which they lived. It's easy for us thousands of years later uh, who have such an institutional text, you know, that uh, whether we disagree on the year it was written or a little bit of what it means here and there, this is from the Bible and we know who Nebuchadnezzar was and we know what God was doing and we know about the Babylonian captivity and we know that God uses uh, evil, ungodly nations and kings, uh, you know, for his own purposes. But if you're living then and, and you're one of those people, one of the exiles, my guess is you don't quite get that. My guess is that's really hard to get your arms around. That, oh, okay, I see, of course. We're in exile. God is at work, you know. And after 70 years, we'll go back and uh, it'll be great, you know. No, uh, it's not quite like that when you're experiencing it yourself. 
This is true for empires. This is true globally, nationally, and in our very hearts, right? That God is at work in our own lives, in our own hearts. He's, he is the sovereign. We may not under, understand what happens. You know, yesterday I spent uh, the afternoon with an old friend uh, who uh, endured a horrific uh, tragedy uh, in, his, uh, in his family's uh, life. His, uh, near Dayton, uh, a little boy drowned, and so did his mother trying to save him. And, uh, you know, and, and so uh, uh, this uh, friend of mine was is a strong believer, but obviously, you know, very distraught over this. Who can understand these things, you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, he kept saying, I know God is good, and so I know that there's good. And it's, so I, I took his hand and I said, you know, this is not good. This is a horrible. This is a tragedy. This is, this is a terrible, this is just a terrible thing. Don't try to make it good. Don't try to, like, like, like be like the plasterer and there's a hole in the wall and just take some plaster and say, okay. It'll be, no, you have to grieve. You have to understand this is the world we live in. We do not understand what God is doing a lot of the time. I would venture to say most of the time. We don't know exactly what God is doing, but we do know that it's not all about me. It's not all about my life. It's not all about making me feel good. It's not all about blessing me. It's not all about uh, God's wonderful plan for me. It's about my opportunity to serve his wonderful plan for this world. And I don't know always what that means. It's too cosmic. It's too big. We need to read Psalm 8 more often and realize how little we are in this. But yet God does love us. Of course he loves us and he sent Yeshua into this world to die for our sins and be raised from the dead. But yet we still need wisdom and that doesn't mean answers to all of life's uh, uh, tragedies and issues. I could give a whole message on that right now, but I, w- but I, I will refrain. All right? <laughs> But the point of it is here is that you have this, uh, uh, you have this a king uh, who's going to experience this. And I would suggest to us that this was not only for his benefit, but for the benefit of those exiles also to understand that God is indeed the king, whether we understand it, whether we feel it, or whether we experience it, but we know it. And you know, uh, in the book of Hebrews, in the um, 11th chapter, there's a passage you're all familiar with, or many are, where uh, uh, God speaks to us. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. And so I hope that our faith is not shaken by, what, by only what we see, what we see or what we experience or what we feel, but in whom we believe. Remember Job? I know my Redeemer lives. He did not have a lot of evidence in his own life for this outward evidence when he said that. But he said, I know my Redeemer lives. Just like Job's friends. Even if we die in the furnace, he's still our God, you know? Not like so much of the preaching and teaching today is, you know, he's God because he's going to get you out of that fire. Well, he may not in this lifetime. But that's not what my faith is based on. It's based on the reality of the resurrection of Yeshua, based on the reality of God. 
Okay? And so here, we see the tree is cut down, uh, and but not killed, and that the tree is a man, and the man is going to be like an animal. And the, the reason for this is to show that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Okay? So now in verse 18. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, had seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. He repeats this. It's like a refrain. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a, while, for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. Because you know why he was appalled? Because he knew he's going to have to give bad news to the king. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, if only the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful in its abundant fruit, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Notice the phrase, reached to the sky, is repeated. When you read a passage like this, it's really important to be observant and to see things that are repeated, okay? Like the dominion, the dominion, the dominion of the king, you know? And that his greatness has reached to the sky, reached to the sky. This is the king of Babylon, and his dominion is reaching to the sky. What is that supposed to remind us of? Babel, yes, of course, Babel, man acting independent of God uh, out of his own hubris, right? To reach the sky. And what did God do? Right? Uh, he tore down, so to speak, the, the tower and uh, scattered the people over the face of the earth. Perhaps it's not a coincidence that it says reach to the sky and that Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Okay? And in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots to the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it, around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord my King, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it upon whom he wishes." And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots in the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven, uh, it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your, uh, of your prosperity. Okay. There are a few other things to say about this. 
One is, you know, beasts. It's interesting that he becomes an animal, a beast. Because that also, just like a tree, beasts are used in ancient literature and in this book of Daniel to describe empires that are evil and are ungodly and that fall uh, and uh, uh, that are defeated by uh, the kingdom of God, right? Uh, I won't turn there, but read the seventh chapter and we see a vision that Daniel is going to have about beasts, about empires, see? Uh, and, uh, and we know that there's this evil, the fourth empire is this great beast with horns and described in, in uh, you know, a wondrous kind of way, right? What I would suggest is that what you have here in chapter 4 is that this same truth, in a way, is working itself out in the person of Nebuchadnezzar. That not only uh, are beasts empires, but they can be personified by their kings. And so that Nebuchadnezzar himself is viewed as a beast, as a beast. But notice, there is another uh, important truth here <clears throat> that we read. There is a call for repentance. It's very interesting that Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar some advice here. He doesn't just say, this is a done deal, this is what's going to happen. But he gives him some advice that maybe he can stay this judgment from these watchers, right? Break now from your sins. Isn't that fast, eh? Break now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. That's very interesting. So not only is this passage about the sovereignty of God and that he really is the one who is king over all the earth, but he also shows that there is a level of human responsibility and that a king does have in his power the opportunity to perhaps prolong his reign. But it is not based on hubris, on pride, it is not based on power. It is not based on politics. It is not based on uh, ingenuity. It is not based on rhetoric, the ability to be a great orator or to motivate or to convince people of certain things or one's uh, particular, uh, you know, uh, particular uh, political uh, ideology. But notice what he says. Doing righteousness. Doing right things doing right things in accordance with the word of God and by showing uh, mercy to the poor and by showing mercy to the poor. So by th these are the hallmarks of what Yeshua says about his own reign as king in passages such as Isaiah 61 and Luke chapter 4, right? releasing captives, the poor, and so on and so forth right? Uh, by being benevolent, doing what's right. I read passages like Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 11, and you read about the justice and mercy uh, of uh, the king. And so he says, so Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, look, you know, I, I, you have the opportunity to prolong your prosperity if you repent of your sins. 
a heartfelt repentance and do what is right. Do what a king with power is supposed to do. That's his word to Nebuchadnezzar. And so we see that it's not simply, uh, that the sovereignty of God does not simply mean that people are automatons or robots and that the die is cast and there's nothing one can do, but the contrary. God is indeed really the king and he raises up kings of this world to serve in his capacity to do things in accordance to the will of God. But kings of this world, almost by nature, whether we call them, whatever they, we call them, by nature are filled with pride and power uh, and, uh, and, and things of that nature. And you see, God is saying to the king, you have the opportunity to do right, but this is what's going to happen. You will see that I am really the king. So now, let's, how does Nebuchadnezzar respond to this? Does he repent? Does he say, okay, I get it. This is like this massive warning to me. We read here, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, so a year goes by, an opportunity for the king to do right. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, it is not Babylon, the great which I myself have built as a royal residence, by the might of my power. And for the glory of my majesty, well, there we go. Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind For your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And so this is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like the cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. So he sees that there is this God who is more powerful than him. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing but he does according to his will in, a host of, in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? You know, even evil kings ultimately will recognize the power of God. All of the power of this world will one day recognize the power of God. And so here we see in the life of this king, Nebuchadnezzar, that yes, he does indeed, he's forced as it were, to recognize the power of God. At that time, my reason returned. My majesty and splendor were restored. Now, see, look at what it says. Read it carefully with me. For my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassed 
and surpassing greatness was added to me. So we can say Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it. He gets it, but he doesn't get it. You see, Uh, so much like this world, so much like even us. A question for us is we get it, but do we get it? Do we look in the mirror and recognize, look at how far God has brought me. You know, I definitely would not be here without the hand of God. I, I certainly would not. I would not uh, have the position that I have that where I affect many people. I could speak into people's lives and, and uh, this and that. And of course, it would not happen without God. And I just really want to thank God for that. I wonder how many of us just are really like thanking ourselves, you know, or mouthing words about God or, or really believe that God is, is my helper, you know, that he's, he is helping me, but this is really who I am. I think in our culture, that is one of the biggest problems we have as, as uh, people who embrace Yeshua, is that we're not quite sure if we get it. We get it. We got the theology. We get it. We understand that, you know, he died for our sins and he rose from the dead, and, and, and the Ruach HaKodesh lives within me and he empowers me. But boy, a lot of what I see is a lot about me. And it's as if the role of the Ruach is to glorify me. He's helping me. He's glorifying me, you know? Uh, and so, therefore, that's how I am serving God, because he's glorifying me, and everybody needs to see that and know that. But what if, what if whatever we have is taken away from us? Would we then glorify his name, which goes back to the very beginning, about really what the sovereignty of God is about? That if we lost all that's precious to us, would we still glorify his name? Would we say, I know my Redeemer lives? Or, would we just, or are we just quoting the book of Job because we like to quote the book of Job where he says, I know my Redeemer lives? That is a tough question. That is a challenge for us. We get it, but do we get it? What does it really mean for it to be about him and not about us? He may not uh, uh, change our mental state and turn us into animals. But certainly we may not experience truly uh, what it means to uh, really be a slave of God or to serve God. You know, do we really die to self? This is about dying to self. It's about what does that really mean? Am I really living for the, for the glory of God? And notice at the very end here, the very last thing he says, this is the punchline, you might say, of this whole thing. The last verse in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his way is just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So out of the mouth of this king who didn't really get it, he says the right thing. This is about pride. This is about good old lack of humility, pride. When we say, do we get it, but do we really get it? That is indeed what we're talking about. And so how do we guard against this attitude? Well, you know, it's interesting, embedded in this text, uh, when he's uh, talking here about, uh, about the dream, in verse 17, where he says, that the purpose of it is in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes, then the next little phrase is very interesting. And sets over it the lowliest of men. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that what God did in the person of Yeshua? 
It's not, it's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not Cyrus. It's not uh, Alexander the Great. It's not Julius Caesar. It's not uh, uh, any of the great world uh, rulers that we read about in our history books. Who turned the world upside down? Who is indeed the king? It is the one uh, who came in the very enfleshment of Hashem, of the God of Israel, and that is Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua the Messiah, the lowliest of men. He was like a stump out of dry ground, but what came out of him? The fruit of righteousness. What came out of him is this humble man who lived in this world, but who was really the king, who was really the king. And so the opposite of Nebuchadnezzar is Yeshua. In a very famous passage in uh, Philippians, in the second chapter, where we read the opposite of the attitude of Nebuchadnezzar, where it says, have this attitude in yourselves, as was also in Messiah Yeshua, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of many, humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. We'll, we'll stop right there. Because the point of that for us here is, Yeshua is our model and not Nebuchadnezzar. As we glorify the name of God, there's lots of passages that I could turn to that I don't have time right now. But in the ninth chapter of uh, Jeremiah and in the 13th chapter of Jeremiah, we read about pride and it, is, and it is the opposite of glorifying God, the opposite of having in our mind, what can I do to, to um, really uh, get people to know who God is? Having, you know, being uh, preoccupied with that. What, what do we do? How, how do we function against pride? By remembering the Psalms that talk about the great works of God. By telling people the great works of God. By bringing on God and not myself. Here is a challenge. Testify about something that God has done in this world or in, the, in your world without yourself in it. Without me. Without what, you know, uh, uh, how now uh, I'm much better than I was. But just about God, about faithfulness, about uh, his truth, uh, about the effect that he does change lives, but it's not about me. By focusing on the things of God and really, I think, uh, regularly repenting of our sins and praying for others and just not being so focused on ourselves. This would be quite helpful. But the challenge for us is uh, uh, to not be so focused on my own, what I want, and my own self-determination, but what is God doing in this world, and how can I serve in what God is doing in this world? By taking the focus off of ourselves and onto him. Because the real challenge here is, as, as much as we may think that we are indispensable, as much as we may think that, uh, you know, how, how God is using me and how fantastic that is, the testimony that we have about Nebuchadnezzar is that at any moment in time, God can just take that away. He can. Because he's the one who raises up, and he's the one who takes down. And he raises up the lowliest of people. 
Not whom, like, like David, for example, versus Saul. He'll raise up whom he wants to raise up. And so the two main things as, as we just finish up here to learn from this chapter is don't be so worried about the politics of this world because there is a king and his name is Yeshua. And he will reign in this world. And he reigns uh, in the lives of those who trust in him. And he is doing a work in this world even if we don't understand it. And we need to be focused on him. Focused on him. Be aware of everything that's going on, obviously. But be focused on him. Number two is this issue of pride. This issue of I am indispensable. Because sometimes what we do is we're putting ourselves like in the place of that world ruler. <laughs> if my universe, you know, uh, but recognize that he is indeed the king and he raises up and he tears down. And wh- whatever we are, or whoever we are, we are only by the grace of God. And that is a wonderful thing because when we repent, when we stay close to the God of Israel in Yeshua the Messiah, uh, we will see God begins to transform us. And may I suggest, not from being a king into an animal, but, from, but, but, but in a sense, from being an animal into all that God has called us to be. You know, recreated in the image and likeness of God. And so let us find our satisfaction in him. Let us find our satisfaction in what he calls us to be. Let us find our satisfaction in doing whatever job we have, doing it well for the glory of God. Uh, and we will see uh, satisfaction in our, in, in our lives and a change in the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, God, for this powerful chapter of Scripture. Lord, thank you, God, that uh, uh, through the pen of Daniel, we have this testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, and we thank you, God, that you raised him up to judge the Jewish people. That's the testimony of the Bible, of the Tanakh. But Lord, that he is not all-powerful, not at all, but that you are. So Lord, help us to be encouraged in this dark world to focus on you, Lord, and the victory that you promise. And may we see that victory in the lives of individuals and in our own community, the way we interact with each other. And may it make a difference in the world around us. Lord, keep us humble, Lord, as we walk with Yeshua and not with Nebuchadnezzar. And we pray in Yeshua's name.